link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-aged children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Are you joining the weekly live and interactive webinars offered by SpeechTherapyPD.com? Hope so. And here's a tip. Just in case you're a student or you know one, student accounts are free. For everyone else, you get $20 off our audio subscription. Just use the discount code LINK20, L-I-N-K-20. Enjoy. Let's face it. Some of the kids we work with experience educational trauma and are lacking in two foundational learning pieces, confidence and joy. First, we have to acknowledge that this does happen and figure out how it happens and why, and then what we can do to help these precious children. This may be one of the most important podcasts I've ever done. Here we go. All right. Okay, before we get started, I would like to mention disclosures. Regarding financial disclosures, Dr. Swain does receive an honorarium for this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I also receive an honorarium for the speech link. And I'm a presenter for SpeechTherapyPD.com and receive royalty payments. Also, I own Speech Dynamics. And regarding non-financial disclosures, Dr. Swain is the author of the book Confidence and Joy, Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. And she has non-financial disclosures to report, and neither do I. All right, there we go. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And a warm welcome to Instill Confidence and Joy in Our Language Kids Who Suffer from Educational Trauma. And you are more than welcome to participate. Just type your question or comment into the chat, and I'll read it and our esteemed guest will respond. And I'm Shar Beauchart, your speech-language pathologist host of the SpeechLink, and I've been really looking forward to learning from Dr. Swain for quite some time, and she has a great deal of insightful information to share. Let me share a little bit about her. Deborah Ross Swain, EDD, CCC, SLP, is a national and international speaker and author and the clinical director and CEO of the Swain Center for Listening, Communicating, and Learning. She is the former chief of speech-language pathology at the University of California Davis Medical Center and held a clinical staff appointment to the School of Medicine. Dr. Swain is the immediate past president of the California Speech-Language Hearing Association, CASHA, and has served on the CASHA Board of Directors for 10 years. She is a fellow of the association for ASHA and editor of SIG-17's Perspectives Journal. Dr. Swain's most recent book, Confidence and Joy, Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. I happen to have it here, okay? It's a, it's a good one. I've read through it. It's also an Amazon bestseller. I, I looked. And she's also authored numerous other books and standardized test batteries. And I bet you've used a few of these, including the Auditory Processing Disorders 3rd Edition, Assessment, Treatment, and Management, the Receptive Expressive Social Communication Assessment, elementary, and the Auditory Phoneme Sequencing Test. I think that's so cool. And Dr. Swain is the recipient of numerous state and university awards. In addition, she was honored with the Nancy McKinley Leadership Award from the Council of State Association Presidents, 
presented at the annual ASHA convention in Boston, Massachusetts. I really am very excited that you're here. Welcome to the speech link, Dr. Swain. It's a wonderful honor to be here. Thanks, Char, for inviting me and including me in this opportunity. It's great. Thanks. Great. Oh, thank you. Now, let's get started. We only have an hour. <laughs> okay, so we're going to jump right in. I do want to get to the heart of the educational trauma piece and why it's a concern. And I'm going to say that we're all, most of us are familiar with the term learning styles. You know, the child learns auditorily or visually or, or he or she is a kinetic learner, etc. But in your book, Confidence and Joy, you say, learning is also influenced by a child's emotional system and psychological state on any given day. And for us to watch for, and I really like this phrase, learning response behaviors, learning response behaviors. Get us into this. Tell me more. So I'm going to give you just a little backstory before I jump into that. So confidence and joy was as a result of like all my years of experience working with children with learning differences and watching them. And I've had the the joy of watching them from, say, five years to 18 to 20. Some come back and check in and just say, hey, Deb, how's it going? I'm doing okay. So I've watched children over time, and I've watched their struggles. And you'll notice in the title, I use the word learning differences, not learning disability, not learning disorder, because so many of the children that I see and work with they don't have IEPs. They don't have 504s. They've just struggled to learn because they have a different way of learning. So I'll talk about those response behaviors because you have to watch. I learned and I have learned that we learn by observing and we see in our mind and in our hearts by watching and then analyzing what we're seeing. So I'll tell you one of the biggest things that I have learned is with response, with regard to what influences responding in children. One, and I talk about the emotional piece of it, and I'll get more to that probably later, but often children have a delay in their response time. So they have to think about something a little bit before they respond. We call it in my textbook, we call it auditory latency. In the in the the field of auditory processing, we refer to it as auditory latency. Just a fancy name for a slow response to auditory input. So these children who have auditory latency, by the way, there is no construct to measure that. There's no standardized test to measure it. It's, it's qualitative data. And I do want to give a plug here for qualitative data because it's just as important as quantitative data when we're gathering data. So each child serves as their own baseline. And for everybody who's participating, you know when a child gives you a prompt response versus a delayed response. So... When a child is delayed in their responding, it doesn't mean they're not getting it. 
It just means they need a little more time. But if if the adult working with them or whoever is working with them doesn't note that, they'll just start keeping on talking, keeping on talking, keeping on giving oral input where this child is still back at the beginning, right? So <laughs> what happens is this population of children, they are at risk for missing a lot of information. So I'm just going to give a simple little example for that. Let's say a teacher is standing in the front of the classroom and said, boys and girls, before you open your, ma your math books to page 23, get out a piece of paper and pencil. So looks like a pretty easy direction, right? Well, this child who has auditory latency is still back there trying to figure out the before versus after. It can only take a second, literally a second, but they turn off their listening switch so they don't have the competing noise of them thinking and the teacher talking. Turn on the listening switch and they hear a piece of paper and pencil. So if a child is listening to oral discourse, let's they get the first part, miss the second part, maybe get the third part, miss the fourth, get the fifth. And when they go to assimilate it, they're trying to make sense out of nonsense. It doesn't make sense. So that's why response behaviors are so important. Not only is latency an issue, but intrusion. So that's where children have difficulty shifting from one set of stimuli to the other for, because of a delay or because they're trying to figure out what's been said. And intrusion is just when a little of this stuff that was talked about just a second ago intrudes on another set of stimuli. And again, they're trying to make sense out of nonsense. Yeah. And the teachers, I'm sorry, but the teachers just assume that everybody got it. Yes, exactly. Exactly yeah. the yeah. case. Yeah. And then you have this other little person over here that's still back on, on you know, the first instruction and missed the second or whatever, and they don't remember what page they're supposed to, but they've got their paper and pencil. That's correct. Yep. And yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and I mean, I can kind of relate to that. <laughs> you know, we were just talking about, you know, technology and so on. And, and, you know, and we were talking about that sort of latent piece. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I am assuming that all of this, that this is not only comprehension, memory, trying to synthesize all the meaning. I mean, it, is it all of that? Or, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but it's not just, oh, we didn't get the instructions. No, it's no, not that. There's, because there's they a know. lot to it. So they, they can turn to the page if they had remembered it or processed it. Or got it all. Or got it all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So or I'm just trying to sort it out. Sure. Because <laughs> there, process it. there is, on when we talk about processing, there's three types of processing. Well, actually four, really. But one, you have auditory processing, you have spoken language processing, and you have information processing. And it's kind of like a Venn diagram. And then there's the fourth one that, that on any given day is going to influence all those other ones. And that's emotional processing. No. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, my little buddy and I'll call. I'm just going to say Matthew. On any given day, Matthew's emotional processing might be little or it might be huge. And when it's huge and they're kind of ramped up and nervous and anxious, it's going to affect his ability to process auditorily, language-wise, and cognitively, the information processing piece. So the other thing that we want to look for a pattern. Patterns of processing, patterns of behavior, patterns of, of what are we seeing? Is it is it consistent or is it not consistent? So response behaviors are huge. And I, I track them. When I do an evaluation, for example, I actually measure latent responses because then this is why it's so important, Char, because I will get children who quantitatively the data say, this child is just fine, which is really kind of insulting to children because they're working as hard as they can. And if you just look at numbers at times, it is confounding. So let's say these kids look fine in terms of the data that we gather. But when I gather the qualitative data with regard to auditory latency, I can say, okay, they fell in the low average range according to their their scores. However, 78% of their responses were delayed up to six seconds. So that's the value of gathering that data because otherwise this child is told you're doing just fine. Your your, your testing scores are, are fine. So you should be able to do X, Y, or Z. And are you going to tell me how to do that? Sure. How to, how to do that analysis? Mm-hmm. What okay. I do, you and I are kind of old guard with regard to the field, right? We've been around for a while. We've been around the block. <laughs> do you remember the PICA? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Remember that scoring system that Bruce Porch developed? Those, that scoring system described response behaviors. I still use that cor- scoring system to this day in my therapy and in my testing. So that's how I know. So you remember that a 13 was a prompt, by correction, an accurate but delayed response up to two seconds. So when a response is delayed to two seconds, I write a 13. And then for every two seconds after that, I do a little check mark. And that's how I gather. And are you sitting there just intuitively one Mississippi, two Mississippi? So that's very helpful because in then when we're making decisions about moving quickly or not quickly enough in therapy, whatever your goal is, if you say you want 90% accuracy with a skill, you'll see that maybe you can't move forward too quickly or you'll have to make accommodations for that delay. The other thing that many tests don't penalize for is repetitions. And I track those too. So if, if the data show that they're within the average range, yet 60% of those items required a repetition. That doesn't make it a functional skill. Okay. Well, that's easy enough. That was a very long shaggy dog answer to, to your question. <laughs> yeah, but no, no, because that's, I mean, I want to know how do you do that? And and that's just sort of a, a way of sitting there and you know what to look for during their observation. And so as a speech pathologist, we're not only looking at what the stimulus was, 
but also the child's answer. But now we're looking at how long did it take him to think about that? What was the latency period? Is that right? That's exactly Those are things right. We're looking just for? What, yes, yes. And did you have to repeat? And then the other thing is watching them throughout testing because fatigue and fading are super important. So if I'm testing someone for an hour or a two-hour block and they're fading and fatiguing with me, then what's happening in a classroom environment when they're there for six hours? They get, even though they they get a recess and a lunch and another recess, but that's a long time to have to be able to attend and focus and be expected to perform and do what, to meet educational outcomes and expectations. It, it's hard. It's really hard for them. Yeah. Definitely, especially when they're working, trying to put all this information together and to keep up. I mean, that's tiring just in itself, for sure. I would think. For sure, especially if they're getting new information every day. Right. And it depends on, on the teacher. And I have, you know, I mean, teachers, bless their hearts. I mean, I have friends that are teachers, and I love teachers, and I almost became a teacher. But there are teachers that talk so quickly or they have, they're turned away from the kids and they're facing the whiteboard and they're writing and whatever. And so kids, you know, you know, miss this piece. And I'm wondering, and we don't need to get into this, but, you know, as far as the masks and so big on. Big deal. It's a big know, deal. I would think. I mean, you lose a lot of really important information when you're trying to interpret what somebody is saying. So the educational trauma piece, is that I'm sure that there's a whole lot more to it, but is that kind of what you're talking about or, or what other directions can we go just briefly? So what educational trauma is, it's the unintentional, inadvertent phenomena that occurs in a learning environment. So it's definitely not intentional, but I wish that we could have a an interactive conversation with everyone who's participating because this is a an area that's getting a lot of traction right now because of our educational system is kind of broken for especially for kids that need assistance. And I'm not talking about the children just who have IEPs. I'm talking about Say in California, for example, in order for a child to qualify or be eligible for an IEP, they have to fall at the seventh percentile or lower. Well, what about the kiddos that are at the eighth percentile, the ninth percentile? What about the kids that are at the 20th percentile, but they struggle, right? So I'm talking about children who struggle, and this is what it looks like for them. They have to go every day do the same thing that they're not getting and haven't gotten. And that's where the trauma comes in. It's a traumatic experience for them. And what's traumatic for one is not necessarily going to be traumatic for another child. Everyone has their own system, their emotional system, their, their confidence system, their esteem system. And what I've seen over time is children that struggle are more likely, and it's the, it's in the research, to have issues with anxiety and depression and social withdrawal because they just aren't comfortable with struggling. 
So a perfect example is, is if we as adults had to go do our job every day and we never understood it and we had expectations to succeed, as adults, we have privilege. We could say, I'm not doing that. I'm getting a new job. I'm out of it. But children don't have it. They have, it's, they, they're enrolled in compulsory education. They have to do it. So every day they have to do something that makes them feel bad about themselves. And it, they know. They know they're not getting what the other children are getting. Then it becomes an, a traumatic event for it, so for them. So there are three E's of trauma. There's the event, the experience, and then the effects. And the effects are going to differ. So the event can be doing a reading program where they have to do, they don't move from the same level. They, they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and it never gets easier. The experience then is they're embarrassed. Kids joke about it. And the, the other experience is they don't experience success. They're failing. So they have the event, they have their experience, and then they have the effects of this. And it's so on a continuum. But what's interesting is I have clients that I saw when they were in elementary school come back and they go, oh, I hated school. It was so traumatic for me. I was diagnosed later as being dyslexic or whatever. And here we are. And they're experiencing that trauma. You say school and they just have a visceral response. It's really common, Char. It's happening more and more and more. Yeah, I fully agree. And it has always been happening. And, you know, that seventh percentile piece, I think, is pretty much national. It's a, you know, a national cutoff. And I think there's other ways to qualify kids, too. But those are almost just as limiting. And I've often thought of those kids, and I call them the kids that just kind of slip between the cracks. You know, they're kids that need help but they're not getting it. And then you add, you complicate that whole traumatic piece where it just accumulates over time. Oh, I, I cannot, I cannot even just imagine how kids do it. And then you, you get them moving into the, you know, the behavioral issues and so on. And yeah. And then if they have language issues, it just compounds. So at any rate, okay. All right. We're there. So let's move into the confidence piece. How do you define confidence and how do you measure joy? <laughs> you know, we, we can't measure those things. You know, you just look at a child and a child who has confidence is willing to try. I'm just going to leave it under the learning domain, but no, I'm not. I, it can, but we're focusing on, we're talking about learning, but who's willing to step forward and go, I can do that. I will do that. But that's because they've had enough success. So to build confidence, a child has to have success. I call it, let's give them more vitamin S and they have to have success. Yeah, because, I saw that in your book. I, I like know, that. right? And it's, <laughs> S for success, vitamin S. And for those like of that. you who are listening who have trouble saying no, just take more vitamin N. So those are my two favorite vitamins. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> vitamin yeah, S, vitamin N. But vitamin yeah. S or success builds resilience in not only children, but all of us. So how do we address it? 
we have to make sure that every child experiences success. I don't care how you have to do it, but they have to be successful because without it, they will feel like they don't fit in. They're not getting it. They're not moving along, whatever that is in whatever endeavor, whether it's learning or sports or social or, or music or anything. Speech, language, yes. all of that. Speech. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. And I, I want to say something here. I've been a clinician all my life. So we have to make sure that these kids move in speech and they're not working on the same thing they were last year or the year before. Yeah. That, yeah that'll kill that, them. It, it, it does. It's awful. It, mm-hmm. it is the death yes. knell. So the confidence piece is essential for our humanness, who we become as human beings. And if we don't feel that we have that, I can do that, I can do that, it's a huge barrier to moving forward. And it it affects all kinds of choices that are made and decisions that are made. You know, I just attended a really great conference over the weekend, and it's the National Academies of Practice. And I would encourage all of you to take a, a to look it up on, on the internet. But it's comprised of 14 medical professions that come together to, it used to be to advise legislators about healthcare. Now our mission is to transform healthcare because it's, that system is broken. But the term that I heard, and that's what I wanted to mention, is it's called, for physicians, it's called narrative medicine. For us, it's narrative practice. And this is digging in, and I'm not, I'm not going off topic. It's related to, it's about confidence. It's about humanness. But what narrative practice is, is recognizing and appreciate, appreciating the fact that everyone has a story, whether it's your three-year-old in early intervention, what's going on. And we listen to what they're saying so that we can really make sure that how we approach them is more gestalt-like. And it's not drill, 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 or it's not raising the bar to uh, meet a certain number because this resonated so much with me and it's just amazing because it goes back to these children that I write about in this because no one's asking them. We're telling them. We're telling them what they need. But what they, I don't know what that child needs. I think I know what would benefit that child to make their learning better, to make their life better, make their communication skills better. But they just may need me to be Deb and a friend on any given day and to be their coach. But narrative practice is getting a lot of attention. And quite honestly, I think SLPs are going to be the profession that can minimize and educational trauma and kind of revolutionize how we do stuff because we are the communication experts. But most importantly about that is that we link language with learning. And if we help others to discover that link, we would make that difference in imparting information. I think that we are the ones. I truly believe it because 
without communication and without really emphasizing how important communication is, we're leaving it to just teaching stuff. And people learn more and better when they discover it by where they're led by people like us. Yes, yes. Oh my, I could go off on so many different tangents. I mean, these are things that I have totally thought about through the years as well. And, you know, the whole language piece. And, you know, I was in the schools for many years. And again, teachers are, are absolutely doing the best that they can. And a lot of them have to, you know, adhere, you know, strictly to a curriculum and so on. And they have so much to get through. And especially now, it's been kind of a crazy two years. But these kids need that personalized, that the experience piece and that whole time of discovery. And we're going back to confidence here. I really think that kids improve their confidence and then competence when they make that discovery rather than just me saying, oh, yes, you know, that sounded really good. Yes, I heard that word. You included it. Yes, that sound is good. Yes, you did great and you answered that well. I want them. I want to pull it out of them. I want them to discover it. And that's one more thing where they can go, yep, I got it. And that begins to build their confidence. And I have seen that through the years, but I don't necessarily see that a lot in classrooms. It's, you know, let's all do this activity, turn in your papers, I grade them, turn it back. It, a lot of times it just has to be that way. But oh boy, wouldn't it be great you know, to instill some of those confident build, confidence builders, you oh, know, in absolutely. the classrooms and yeah. so on. Yeah. I think, like you're saying, I think we, as the communication specialists, can help impart that. Absolutely. Are you taking advantage of our new handy feature, the certificate tracker? Keep a record of all your CEUs, not just for any of the 750 audio and video courses here at SpeechTherapyPD.com, but from anywhere. Upload your certificates and voila, you have an organized all-in-one place record of all your CEUs. Cool. You know, it's one of my hopes and dreams is that when I wrote this in the introduction of that book, and I really feel strongly about this, that when people are sitting around an IEP table making decisions about reading, spelling, and math, that they have a goal for confidence and joy. So that kids are, we build their confidence and maintain their joy for learning and not them not be afraid of it. And the other thing that I do with, with little ones, I always say, hey, what's your superpower? So I think every child needs to know that they have a superpower, whether it's constructing something awesome with Legos, or they're really good on the soccer field, or they're really good at climbing, whatever their superpower is, they need to know it. Because that starts that, oh, I am kind of good at stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I can do yeah. something, you know, it might not be reading, spelling and math, but it's something. Yeah. Well, I remember walking in so many times, walking into a classroom, and there was, you know, one of usually my child is, you know, the desk has been removed off to the yes, side, yes. and the kid is sitting over there drawing. A lot of my kids that I had were excellent artists. I mean, we're talking really good artists. And that's a superpower. Sure is. I mean, it really is. So, yeah, 
Excellent. Okay, good, good, good. And that whole piece about instilling language with the learning, I mean, that's a whole nother thing that we can do. And a lot of times teachers look at, at language arts, the grammatical piece as being language. And that is something that we can help too. So, all right. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Now I want to get into some really strategies and things that we can do and ideas and techniques and, and, you know, what additional kinds of things can you share with us to build the confidence, to build the joy, to help expand that knowledge, uh, you know, with teachers and parents as far as what language is and how it really synthesizes and as a foundation to learning. Do you have any other things that you can sure. share with us? Well, sure. The first thing is, is recognizing that a child isn't intentionally trying to annoy a teacher or a speech pathologist or a parent. And I have yet to meet a child that doesn't want to be successful. So when they are inattentive and when they're like messing around with stuff on their desk or being disruptive, we have to discover why that is happening and not just say, I think they have ADHD. So first of all, we have to let them, let the child know that they're valued, they're respected, we, they're loved because these children are hard children to teach. Sometimes they're hard children to have in therapy. So they can read body language super well. And all it takes is a, a few tones of voices for them to realize, oh, maybe that person doesn't like me that much. It's a facial expression. We have to monitor that. But answer to your question, Shar, we have to make them feel valued and respected and loved and included and like they really matter. But we have to figure out what's going on. Why are they doing what they're doing? Something has not been identified. And that's where we have to either do a collaborative assessment to figure out, is it an auditory processing problem? Is it a language processing? Is it is there something? Because we have to make adjustments in how we teach these kids. They, they can learn, but they learn differently. So the first thing we have to do is stop thinking it's intentional and stop thinking it's a behavioral thing. It looks like behavior because you can't see what's going on in their brain and in their cognitive skill set and their language skill set. And then right away, we have to figure out how they're, we make them feel successful. So we break down whatever we're trying to teach them into baby steps without it looking like they're baby steps. And that's a hard thing to do. So whoever's working with them has to make them still feel like, okay, this is really important. You're doing important work. You're doing a great job. And we're going to do this together. So you have a, like a partnership too. So a relationship. And that's one of the most important things with educational trauma is the relationship that children have with their teacher or their special educator or an interventionist. If they don't feel like they have a good, trusting, safe relationship, then everything falls apart. Hold, hold that thought because I'm, you know, transporting myself back to, you know, some IEPs that I was in and, you know, where the kid didn't qualify on paper. So, and I'm thinking that we're talking about a lot of those kids. 
So am I, the speech-language pathologist, bringing these types of issues up and maybe explaining some of these things? You know, can I maybe, you know, work with the teacher on it? Or, or what am I going to do? How, how can I impact this child when he doesn't qualify for my caseload? What can I do? Am I, am I working with the teacher, the parent? I mean, I'm probably going to give them your book, but how, how can I deal with this? And, and I'm thinking that maybe my only shot is just talking about it at the IEP. Or can we do something in, in, on, you know, a response to intervention, an RTI thing? Is that ever done? What can I do to help, help this child through this via somebody else that's going to be working with him? Or her. Thank you for asking that question because that's the thing. I feel that speech language pathologists are the ones that are going to make a difference. So yes, bring it up at an IEP. You don't have to have an, a long discussion because I know what IEPs are like. I mean, you've got nobody loves an IEP, right? <laughs> <laughs> so never heard anybody say that they do. They go, I can't wait for yeah. that IEP. Bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love the paperwork. More of it. But the thing is, is that's where everybody's together. So you can just plant a seed and you could just say, yeah, you know what? I, this is what I think. I think that this child is not feeling good about their learning experience. They struggle every single day. What can we do? And then you can say there is a link between language and learning. You can take two minutes, and I know you guys are thinking, she's out of her mind, two minutes at an IEP. But no, truly, you can do that. Because they don't qualify doesn't mean they shouldn't have services. And that's the confusion. If they did not meet eligibility, that implies that they don't need assistance. It's not the case. So making that designation, if it were me, I've got four children. And if one of my child or two of my child or any of my children were at the ninth percentile or the 10th percentile, that's bad, right? Yeah, that is, yeah. So in answer to your question, bring it up at the IEP. Talk about, well, what's this doing to their, their confidence as a learner, their confidence as a socializer with their friends? The two biggest issues with with these kids is, is learning achievement and social achievement. Then you can develop like just yanking a few things out of that book, five little strategies that build and you can give it to the teacher. So what I talk about is we have to find their superpower. We have to do something that doesn't look like the obligatory, oh, he's going to be the helper today. No, it has to be constant and consistent. And they, at the root of this, they have to feel respected and that they matter. They matter to that learning community. In this case, it's their classroom. So we want to build a team of support. We want to build a community of support. So that's why finding out what they're super good at and getting them into it so they can demonstrate their superpower to their peers. It's Really important that their peers recognize them and value them as well. Yes, yes. So can the teacher sort of qualitatively analyze this and observe it over time so that, I mean, what do we watch for? 
a, a decrease in the the difficult behaviors or maybe even more smiles or the kid stays on task, you know, longer than he did. I mean, are all of these things that I can we can suggest or maybe brainstorm that the teacher is going to look for to know that this child is beginning to build confidence? Sure. Everything you just said, plus you can see their level of angst come down. You can see them maybe raising their hand and volunteering and participating more. You can see them being willing to try new things without being like nudged all the time. And you see social relationships improve, that they're not holding back, they're participating. And then if some of them have kind of like little meltdowns, you see the meltdowns diminish. You see um, their their social engagement be more appropriate. There are a lot of, and it's going to vary for sure. There's not going to be an all-inclusive list. But I'll tell you the thing that worries me the most, Char, is the the anxiety and depression that kids are experiencing right now, the little ones. Now, COVID didn't help any of that, and Zoom learning didn't assist in any of that either. However, this response to learning and feeling that they can't do it, the anxiety that some of these little ones go through is just horrendous. It's horrific. And as first, second graders, third graders, that's the time where they just like delight in going to school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're excited. They want to learn. Let me at it. Yeah, they want to learn to read. They want to learn to draw. They want to learn to print. Yeah, they want to, you know, access, you know, their vocabulary, all the books. And all I know, and it, I know it breaks my heart. Think about, think about preschoolers. They're like little sponges. They go to their preschool. They love it. Every day is exciting because they're getting something new. And then when that, and almost that's pretty universal for most preschoolers. Then they go to public education or compulsory education. And when that goes sideways, that's a huge red flag. We've got to jump in on that really early to figure out why. And get with parents. I mean, parents are super important. Did you see a change? Is there a change? What do you see? And back to narrative practice, those are the folks that you want to have a narrative <laughs> exchange with so that you can get more information. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the narrative practice. That that sounds interesting. I don't have that yet. It's not in my brain. <laughs> okay. It's, it's narrative a, practice. So it's a conversation is really what it is. So tell me about, tell me about how your child learns as opposed to what you're here to see me today for what? So our old model is we ask questions, they answer. This is we ask a question and they give us a very, and if it's not informative, it's like Socratic listening and dialogue where you ask another question to get more narrative, not just one and two answers. That's the difference. Does that make sense? Okay. Makes sense. Okay. There you go. There you go. And along the way, there's going to be important additions and connections that are made. It's different all the time. Because what, what we have here is you're building a relationship. And that, to me, is the most important thing we do as SLPs. Because we we can build relationships and they're built on trust and transparency and 
honesty, humility, empathy, and that reduces the trauma, by the way, if there's a relationship. Okay. And we can do that at IEP meetings with parents. And with your coworkers. Right. Yeah. And with our coworkers and with the child, obviously. Yeah. This is so good. All right. This makes total sense. Total sense. Okay. Let's get back to where we are today with our kids that are coming in. And I know California is just now, you know, lifting the mask piece. And I've been a lot of Georgia where I met, you know, that has been lifted for quite a while. But still, it's been way past the two weeks, you know, to flatten the curve. Way past that. And I bet there are things that we don't even know and how the kids have been impacted and how the parents have been impacted and how their relationships have been impacted and where the teachers are. And I, they have to feel frustrated. And I don't know if you've spoken with any teachers recently, but they have to feel frustrated with, you know, there are some kids that literally lost a year or more. And how in the world do you make all of that up? So, I mean, it's, yeah. It's just, it's, it's really difficult. So do you know, are school psychologists maybe jumping into the fray and maybe helping out here because we need help? Do, do you know, are you connected with any of that? I do a lot of collaboration with psychologists, not necessarily school psychologists, but individuals who specialize in kids with dyslexia or with learning differences or challenges. So I think about learning trauma versus learning adversity. I'm not sure that they're different, but there's certainly a continuum. So what I have seen is there's been a huge increase in parents having their children evaluated because quite honestly, COVID brought on a lot of other issues and Children, when when they were trying to learn on Zoom and trying to keep up with information, they just couldn't do it. Parents were frazzled. They were trying to maintain their professions, homeschool, support their children, do all this. Families were on the brink. And so, yes, I'm seeing way more children being evaluated. And, and working with a a psychologist is my great joy because we combine our information and get a good profile on these children so that we can make recommendations for the very best interventions. But yes, two weeks is now over two years. Thankfully, children have been able to socialize more over the last several months, but the social piece was as big as the curriculum piece. And Shar, yes, they Every, I think every child in the America missed a year of school, and what they missed in second grade isn't going to be made up in third grade. So they're going to go from first grade to third grade, like they were accelerated learners, right? That is, we're, we're looking at that too right now. That by itself, it is. I mean, that's going to make learning very traumatic because if they're expected to know the, the material from second grade, that scaffold got removed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to be difficult. It is difficult. And I, and I know, you know, I, I know a few teachers and, and there is frustration there, no doubt. Oh, frustration. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I'm wondering, you know, to stay on, on a similar topic, 
but move into a little bit different one. You know, the children that were masked, and you know, this is sort of outside our, our zone here, but it certainly has to do with confidence and joy, that were the young ones, the preschoolers, like even younger than that, that were masked, that missed that, that communicative interaction. And, you know, do you think, and I know that there has been some talk of this, you know, even on the news, that kids have, that kids are delayed. Do you think that that has, are you seeing that in your practice or maybe from with your friends that you're talking with? Are you seeing an increase in young children that are at that developmental age and stage? Are they being, have they been impacted? Impacted. Oh, yeah, no question. Early intervention referrals have, are, are up like 343%. And so... You have an exact number. I do have an exact number. 343. <laughs> um, Where did you get that? It was in an article I read. And so... Really? Yes. So what happened was these kids were nine months old when COVID started. So they didn't have the exposure. The only exposure they had for a year really was their immediate family. And going back to what parents were trying to deal with, what were they trying to deal with? Trying to take care of their family, trying to keep their jobs, trying to do a hundred million things. And they weren't going to probably be on the floor playing with their, their, their toddler and their, yeah. their infant. Do you know, and I mean, I'd be curious to see if any of our participants know this, but there was a big brouhaha over the last couple of weeks because the CDC changed their developmental guidelines without a speech pathologist being in the room. And they changed the developmental, the speech and language developmental milestones to a child at two and a half to have 50 words. 50 vocabulary words, when the data before, it was 200 words by two. So right. anyway, so, so now, in answer to your question, I don't know if they changed those guidelines as a result of where children are, but, or it, they were having that conversation before COVID, which I doubt. So anyway, I, when I saw that, I got on my computer and contacted my colleagues at ASHA. And I said, what are you doing about this? This is wrong data. It's bad data. And it will give people permission to accept those delays and say, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Yep. Oh, boy. So anyway, Ooh, ASHA boy. is in conversation with them right now, but that it was shocking. Oh, and another one of those, this has nothing to do with confidence and joy, but they said, now they're saying that kids don't need to crawl. They can skip the thing. What? Who's doing this? <laughs> oh, dear. I know. Jeez. Oh, anyway, okay. the answer to your question is yes, I'm seeing way more referrals for early intervention. Yeah, I, I don't know how we're going to do this. I really don't. We're going to have really big groups. Or maybe, you know, the therapists went in the schools, maybe therapists go into the classrooms. Or maybe when I was in California, I worked at a school and they decided to put all the lower kids in a regular first grade class. All, all the, the kids that are not qualified for anything, but they put them in a lower, reduced educational environment, okay? And then they had another first grade and other first grades that were for your regular kids that are on track, okay? 
I'm wondering, and I have to say, you know, I mean, and it may sound like discriminatory, but hey, it helped these kids because the curriculum they were experiencing was at their level, at their pace, okay? They weren't having to keep up over here, but they were still in regular first grade. You know what I'm saying? Sure. It's kind so, of like old reading groups where you had the ABC reading groups. So instead, you have exactly. ABC classrooms or great. Exactly. Yeah. Where you give them what they're, what they need at their level and at their pace. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe we'll have to do something like that or I don't know. I don't have the answer. I just know that I'm trying to make a difference one little kiddo at a time and, and working with their families and I work with their classroom teachers. I, after I evaluate someone and I get this profile for their processing and how it's impacting educational outcomes and social outcomes. I always have a phone conversation with a classroom teacher, if they're willing. It's part of the evaluation and so that I can share it with them. And then they can share it with whomever. But I feel that that in order for these children to feel like they are can be successful, and they can work through that. And tr- it doesn't have to be traumatic for them to learn to read and spell and do math. We can do this together. And that's just how I work. I just feel so s- strongly about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you are sharing your support. You're offering, and, and maybe it's not long-term support, but you're offering them immediate support. And that's positive. And we probably need a lot of that in this era, in our, in our time now, where people feel, you know, where they don't feel that sense of discouragement that yes, you know, we'll just do the best that we can with our kids and we'll all pull together. And I'm sure that there are schools that are creating plans. And I'm thinking, okay, we just all need to pull together and get through it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. With the common goal that every child can be successful, not, you know, IDEA was every child succeeds or something like that. Well, let's really make sure that they succeed and that that we, that they're not held together with duct tape, that, that they actually believe that they can be successful and every child defines their own success. But we, we can, we are part of that. And you see, I just want to mention that speech language pathologists have value not limited to the seven percentile or lower, we have value to the collective good in any environment that we work in because we're communication specialists and we're undervalued. And I'm not saying that and and, and I'm not complaining. We have application to every institution that we work in, whether it's communication disorders or communication competency. I agree. And I bet most speech language pathologists would agree with you. And, 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 you know, but part of the problem is that, especially if you're in the schools, and I felt it when I was there, that, hey, we're up to here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're up to here. <laughs> you know, so that no, it is, it is totally true. We have some answers that maybe we're not sharing. But Maybe you could talk with your friends at ASHA and let's see if we could get some of this paperwork streamlined. 
<laughs> or something, you know, sort of, um, you know, ease up a little bit so that we could contribute a little bit more and in, in some different ways. But at any rate, this has been great. And I could probably go on for another few hours. Oh, I appreciate you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. And I love talking about this. And I always have so much to say about it because it's, I live it every single day. So, but thanks to all the people who participated. I appreciate that. And feel free if you ever want to contact me directly, they can do that. And um, excellent. And what does that mean, contacting you directly? Let me just put in the chat my email address. Okay, perfect. I know you're there at the, the Swain Therapy Center. Or? Just the Swain Center. Yeah, the Swain Center. Okay. All right. Sounds good. And here we go. Why don't you tell it to us auditorily too here? It's dswain at theswaincenter.com. Okay. Perfect. And I know that you have that the Swain Center has a website too, right? Ah, yes. We have www.theswaincenter.com. Okay. Perfect. And I am sure that there are people... We have a couple of really, actually, it's June. And she says, this is great information. And then also she says, please come back for more. Thank you. And I would be totally up for that. Maybe in a few months, I'll just have to give you another buzz, I would another love it. ring, and see if we could get you back on. Anytime. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Great. Okay. Stay with us, though. I will. Um, we're going to wrap up here. Also, I want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you not only learn practical information like today, but you earn CEUs. Woohoo! And in a few days, you will be able to access this audio course once again through speechtherapypd.com, where you earn one point at point one ASHA CEUs. But you'll also be able to access this episode on all the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean, etc. And I really do appreciate your positive, supportive comments and your reviews. And if you want to plan ahead on the speech link, Licha Pasquet, SLP, will share her practical knowledge on the underestimated power of chewing. And it will be applicable for those of you that work with children as well as adults. And that date is Thursday, April 7 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And as we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. And I do hope you all know just how much you are appreciated. And thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. See you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.